0: Thanks so much, Maurice, and, um, and uh, the, for you all of you to invite me to come and speak with you. Um, I was a, it was pretty amazing, the children's story came from Zambia, and also Issa Mbombolo is a, was a student at Conrad Grable University College, so I got to know him quite well before he went back home to Zambia. Um, this morning I want to talk to you about something that I'm pretty passionate about, and it can seem really ordinary until it's not. I want to talk to you about community-based peace-building, or what I like to refer to as everyday peace-building. (coughs) So what is this? To start, let me give you a quick 101 on definitions of peace-building. In in 1992, um, the word peace-building first became popular because the UN came out with a document called the Agenda for Peace. And in that document, it was the first time that, at that international level, they had used this word peace-building. Um, now, for the UN, the word peace building follows after peacemaking and peacekeeping. So, peace building is what happens from, from the UN perspective what happens after a violent conflict or war. It's what needs to happen to reconstruct a society, to get schools up and going, to get police um, and courts active, to get businesses um, built back up to get infrastructure in place um, and get people back into their ordinary lives. But for many of us um, practitioners of peace building, particularly those of us who, who teach at Conrad Grebel, we see peacebuilding as something that's much more holistic. It's something that's about the whole of life. It's what we do to prevent conflict, it's what we do to resolve it when there is conflict, and it's what we do to heal relationships and communities when they've been damaged by conflict. So in our quest to build a more peaceful world, our greatest resource, I've realized, is in the masses of ordinary people who are doing their ordinary lives. So let me give you an image of that. If you think of a triangle and you divide it into three sections, this is an image that um, comes from John Paul Lederach. Some of you will be familiar with him. Um, he's, a, he's a great teacher of, of peace and peace building. So he talks about this as um, if, we, if we divide a triangle into three sections, and the top section is um, the national leaders, or the leaders in government, business, and religious organizations. So very high level individuals. And then we have a, a middle section um, of, of folks who are um, more national and regional leaders of organizations and businesses. And then we have this bottom section, which is community level, or sometimes referred to as the grassroots. And this is where the majority of people are. Now, of course, you can recognize that some people are in the grassroots, but they are also leaders in other areas. But the majority of people, the majority of us, are at that community level. That's where we live our ordinary lives. That is the wide foundation of peace building. That's where the majority of people are. And I just think, wow, that's an amazing resource for peace and peace building. We often think that peace builders are at the higher levels. They're they're somewhere, they're special people who are out there. Um, Maybe they're activists, maybe they're Nobel Peace Prize winners, maybe they're folks that go overseas, they uproot their lives, they go overseas and work in places like Zambia or other countries with MCC or other organizations. But what gets me so excited is that I think that we are all potential peace builders and we just don't recognize it. So I, in my, in my work, have um, come up with this idea of developing my peace building lenses. So what if I started to look for peace building around me in, in the ordinariness of everyday life? What if I started to look at the people that I love and care about, people that I don't know, and I started to think about, well, what is, what are they doing that actually contributes to peace and peace building? Maybe I would start to see things that I don't currently see. Maybe I wouldn't look so far away to, for peace building. I could actually see it close by to me. I say to myself, imagine the potential if we started to look at our lives and the people around us and recognize what they're doing, how, the, how what they're doing builds peace. Having conversations with people that you don't know, building relationships with people you do know, people you don't know, it all is the foundation of peace. Collaborating instead of fighting, that was part of the children's story. Or, or collaborating instead of competing with others at, at their expense. Um, we do that in our work sometimes, in our businesses and in our in our in our work, avoiding and addressing conflict and, and violence. So I try to develop these lenses, and I'll keep these on just so that you'll remember me as looking this kind of this crazy, and you might think about peace-building lenses. So I went to Uganda um, to do some research with this question in mind, because I had spent a lot of time, as as you have heard, growing up in Southern Africa and Zambia and I had spent a lot of time with people in rural communities there, and I recognized that many of the things they were doing were the foundations of peace and peace-building. But I didn't find stories about them in the literature. I, I I couldn't really find that very much. And so I wanted to go there and listen particularly to women's stories, because of all people, women's stories don't get into literature at all. So I wanted to go and listen to their stories and use the idea of peacebuilding as a lens to look at what they're doing and highlight the ways in which their ordinary lives were contributing to peacebuilding. So I want to share, I've got lots of stories from there, but I want to share a couple with you today. Here's a map of Uganda, and it gives you an idea of the different parts of the country that I went to to gather stories. So quite quite dispersed across the country, but I want to start with Rita, who's right in the center, in the capital city of Kampala. Have any of you seen the movie, The Queen of Katwe? Yeah? Some of you have seen it? Um, if you haven't seen it, I really, I really recommend You might go and see it, or, or rent it, um, or get it from Netflix, The Queen of Katwe, if it's there. It'll give you a really good idea of the context in which, in which Rita lives and works. So Rita grew up in an upper-middle-class family, much like many of us. She went to private schools, and she graduated from university. And after university, she found herself without a job. She was unemployed. So as she would go downtown looking for jobs after university, um, she would see these kids begging on the streets. And they'd been there all along, but she hadn't really noticed them. And she started to ask, it's Like they, she started to be a bit disturbed by these kids asking for money, and, and she started to ask questions like, um, where did they eat? What, like, where did they get their food? And, and where did they sleep at night? and Why were they even on the street? Where were their families? What, what was happening for them that they had to be here? And so it, she started to ask the kids themselves, so she would sit down with them instead of just walking by. If you've ever been in a country where kids are begging, it's really disturbing, and you just sometimes want to just walk by because you're not sure quite what you're supposed to do. Um, and so she started to sit down with the kids and ask some questions like, where do you sleep? What do you eat? And, and why are you even here? Um, and so in this way, she started to develop relationships with these kids. And she would sometimes dress up as a clown and come down into the, to the downtown area and, and uh, play with them. And um, then she started to try to gather up She would tell her family and friends about these kids. And of course, everybody's in their, you know, normal everyday lives. They're kind of disturbed by this, but this is Rita. They know her very well. So she's telling them these stories, and she's trying to gather up some extra bits of food from home and extra clothes, the used clothes, and take them down to the streets and and help the kids. She told me of sometimes sitting on heaps of garbage with the kids because that's where they would hang out, Um, things that a, a married, educated woman in Uganda would never do. Nobody would do that here, even, right? What she learned is that many of these kids came from areas where there was war in the country. Um, Up in the area where Tina and Joyce lived, there was a war going on there, and where Rose is, there was a lot of violence there. So the kids were coming down to the city to try to find safety in the capital city. But as we know, streets of the city aren't safe places for kids. So, initially, she rented a one-room shack um, in the downtown area, in a bit of a slum, as a place to try to at least gather the kids and give them a place that was safe. But she had no experience. She'd never studied social work. She had no, no idea how to deal with kids, or she, wasn't, she didn't have kids of her own at the time. She wasn't a counselor or anything like that. She was really inexperienced. She just had a lot of questions and a lot of care and compassion for the kids, and she was trying to do the little that she could to help these kids. There's a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles in Rita's story, but now, 10 years, over 10 years later, she has an organization called Dwelling Places. And if you look them up, you can find them online, Dwelling Places, um, where over 300 kids now come for rehabilitation to learn to live in family again. Because when you've lived on the street for a long time without family, you've learned skills and strategies of survival that aren't, aren't really helpful in a family. Um, so some of these kids get to go back to their families. They find the families. They're reunited. Other kids are in foster care. And then there are kids who don't have families. Maybe they've been killed. And so they stay in the home, in dwelling places, and are cared for there. Rita and her husband... I haven't even shown you pictures here. Sorry. Oops. There you go. There's Rita. So the kid's begging on the street. And Rita and her husband have actually adopted seven of these kids in the streets, and they're now young adults. You'll see them in the background there, at the family photo. And she's now raising two of her own biological kids. So if we go back to our scripture today, we see how Rita is an example of sharing with people who are in need, of practicing hospitality. Perhaps a different kind of hospitality than we think of with that word. My second story comes from a different part of Uganda. Rose, Lochiam comes from one of the areas where the kids on the streets of Kampala are running away from. I mentioned Moroto, where Rose is. It's it's an area called Karamocha. Rose lives in a remote area in the eastern part of Uganda near the border of Kenya. This region had violent conflict and gun violence for over 30 years. It's a region where people are cattle herders, and they live in a semi-arid area area, so they're a bit nomadic, and they move with their cattle. So when they're trying to find water and grass for the cattle, they move en masse with their cattle. Traditionally, a young man gives a gift of cows to the family of the woman that he wants to marry. Now, to get those cows, the guys like to raid each other's herds. Right? Um, but traditionally, there were protocols around that that the elders would determine, and so women and children were never killed in these, in these kind of raids. And the guys would typically use bows and arrows. But then guns became available, and this kind of raiding changed significantly. Because with a gun, you don't actually ever see the person that you kill. And so it's much easier to do and not feel any connection with that person. And so after that, when the guns became so available, people started to be killed in large numbers, including women and children. Whole villages would be decimated and burned. People's livelihoods, cattle would be stolen and people's livelihoods would be gone. So when I compare that to our lives, what that would be the equivalent of is, if in one fell swoop, your bank account was emptied, any insurance policies you had were null and void, your grocery store was raided, and your job was gone. Because that's what cows symbolize and are for these people in terms of their lives. So people fled, and it became a very volatile and dangerous area to live in. And Rose herself was not unaffected. She, um There's Rose. She, her husband was killed in front of her in a road ambush, and she was left with three little kids to raise. She was a teacher, she is a teacher, and so she could easily have gone to another part of the country to get a job and be just away from all of this. But she chose to stay there because she really had a heart for her people and she wanted something to change, but nobody really knew what to do or how to, how to, how to handle this. So we might hear echoes of the scriptures, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. At one point in Rose's job, she was given the opportunity to go for some conflict resolution training, so she did. And everybody thought, well, that's that's great training, but you're not going to be able to do much with it. She came back, and to everybody's shock, she went back into this region and started to talk to local people, warriors included, to ask them what they thought the sources of conflict were, why it was continuing, and what could be done. Sounds pretty basic, but nobody had done that to that point. Mostly high-level officials were talking about it and trying to deal with it through the military and the police. But Rose went to the local people, and she started to ask them, why do you think this is continuing? I mean, you you don't like your villages being destroyed and people being killed. Why is this continuing? Why is it not stopping? This was a pretty novel idea. Everybody thought they would be killed if they went and talked to local people. But, so Rose was the first person to do this, and this led to conversations between local people and the police and the military in trying to understand what was what was going on. And so Rose started peace clubs amongst the women and the children, or the women and the youth, um, so more like teenagers and young adults. See, the men would meet, and they would talk politics, and they would talk strategy, and nothing really ever seemed to change. So now the women started to meet, and the young, young adults started to meet, And um, they they would talk about, why is this going on? How could it be different? What would peace look like? And at the same time, they would do things like dance, make jewelry. They had bike rallies. In that area of Uganda, there aren't a lot of cars, but there are lots of bicycles, and so they would have bike rallies. And so this would bring people from different regions together, and they would meet people that they had never met before, people who were previously considered enemies. So, this is a way of socializing, but also building relationships. So, in this, way, in this way, barriers started to break down between people. Groups started dialogue forums that met over several years, and they started to shift people's perceptions of who the other is, who the enemies are. They started to ask questions, and they started to imagine what they could do together. Today, I never thought it would happen, but there's peace in this region. This went on for 30 years. A couple couple summers ago, Ralph and I were in Uganda, and Rose told me that people are calling this the Women's Peace because of all the efforts that the women with Rose had made, in just in meeting together in local groups, and the ripple effect of, of what these conversations did. And so we hear the scripture, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So why are these women extraordinary? I think it's because they went against some of the values and attitudes and acceptable behaviors in their culture and society, and they built relationships with people who others ignored or were afraid of. They decided to do something to address the suffering, the poverty, the conflict and violence that they saw in their communities. It's only years later that we would say, wow, that's, that's, that resulted in something extraordinary. At the time, these women were just doing their ordinary life. They did not think of themselves in any way related to peace. They were just trying to address something that was really on their heart um, and really of concern. So they were taking actions to find questions that disturbed them, like, why are these children living on the street, or why is this violence continuing? So I might ask us, what questions are concerning us? What's on our heart? What's disturbing us about our communities? As I told you, I'm on this quest to develop these peace-building lenses so that when I look through them, I start to see the extraordinary things that ordinary people are actually doing in their lives that contributes to peace. So I have another story for you, and that is from Southern Ontario. I used to work as as a rural planner in Huron County. During that time, in one area, there was a conflict between the farm community and the non-farming Lakeshore residents, folks who owned cottages and and otherwise had residences that they were retiring to along Lake Huron. The conflict was over water quality. Farmers were being blamed for their agricultural practices that would pollute rivers that were going into Lake Huron, um, and that would cause um, beach closures so that folks along the lake couldn't actually enjoy the lake and go swimming. And so then the farmers would blame folks along the lakeshore who had faulty septic systems, and also then there were municipal bypasses that would end up in sewage getting into the, into the lake. At the time that I was involved there, there were death threats, there were threats of lawsuits, and there was one person who lived along the lakeshore who had an ultralight, and he would zoom over the farms really low to intimidate the farmers. This is in rural Ontario. Got to the point that they couldn't talk to each other. And it seemed that suing, each other, suing one another in the court was the only option. Nobody was talking to anybody. Neighborliness had vanished between the two groups. Many were concerned, but they had no idea what to do. So my colleague from the University of Guelph, Wayne Caldwell, and I, were both planners, and we wanted to help the two communities come together and discuss... Um, in a way that would enable them to hear each other in this discussion. So drawing on our relationships in the community with folks on both sides of the conflict, we got several of them to agree to being trained in how to lead a circle. Dialogue process. This is a process where everybody sits in a circle, you might be familiar with it, and we use a talking piece. In this case, we used a stone from Lake Huron. So it was very relevant to the conversation. It was coming right from the lake. Um, and, And this got passed around the circle, and when it gets passed around the circle, everyone gets an opportunity to speak to the, to the issue. So in this process, we first would agree to values and guidelines that were going to guide our conversation because it was a really hot and heated conversation. And then we would talk about the lake and what it meant to people and the conflict that was dividing the community. So we held a training, and then a farmer and a cottage, Association member volunteered to lead a series of circles with Wayne and myself, two in the farm community and two in the Lakeshore, with the Lakeshore residents. Once people felt safe enough, we met in a combined circle with both, with folks from both sides of the conflict. You can see that circle there, that was the actual circle. In these circles, we heard why the lake was important to people, why they felt connected to it and so invested in it what the key issues were, and what ideas they had to address the conflict. We didn't ever completely resolve this conflict, but what happened was that the conversation between the two groups changed. Having sat in the same room together, hearing each other's stories and very real concerns and hopes for the lake, people on both sides realized that they had more in common than they realized. And they realized that the others weren't as awful and unreasonable as they had imagined. It took a lot of courage and commitment for the farmer and the the cottager to step up to co-lead this process with us. And it took a lot of courage for community members to show up and have this conversation in the circle, be willing to share openly and listen deeply. They were walking on eggshells when they walked into that room. But by the end, There were ordinary things that were happening, like a farmer passing out her business card and saying, if you want to know how we farm or you have any questions, contact me or come over to the farm. And that couldn't happen before that conversation because they were so divided. This conflict has never escalated to this level since. So whatever you thought peace building was, I'm here to tell you that it's all around you. It's in your own life. Ordinary people are doing it daily. There's no special brand of peace builder. It's about the daily choices that we all make to live our values as we choose our attitudes, our actions, and the way that we behave. All of these add up to how we show up in life, how we show up in the world, and how we try to make a difference. The heading for our scripture in in my Bible at home was love in action. So I invite you to think of love in action and all that's listed in that passage as everyday peacebuilding. How in your life are you an everyday peacebuilder? Or how can you be? We all desire a better world, a more peaceful and just world. What if, as one Hopi elder says, has said, We are the ones that we've been waiting for. Thanks.